You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Um, and this handout is, uh, basically it's a choose your own adventure. It, should you choose to do this, this would be a way for you to look into, um, memory verses. Yes, memory verses from, um, from the letter, Paul's letter to the Philippians. Because, uh, I, I think that we're not, I sometimes think, oh, I'm above that, I'm an adult, I'm a mature Christian, and yet, the benefit of memorizing scripture is that it comes back to you when you really need it. So if you need any encouragement to make, you know, cause the scripture to get into your bloodstream, that's what I often find happens when I actually memorize it, is it just gets in there and then when I really need it, it's right at, at my, at my fingertips, right at my, the tip of my tongue. So those are some really good, those are especially good verses from the whole book that might be helpful for you to memorize if you were so inclined. Um, well, so let's begin. We'll begin with prayer and keep going. Um, I know I've sort of already begun, but let's begin by praying. Father, we thank you and praise you for your work in our lives through your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for your holy scriptures, for your word given to us. And we thank you, Lord, that in your word we have life and that your word points to um, the reality of your great love for us in the word made flesh, your son, Jesus Christ. And so we ask now during this brief time that you would open up your word to our hearts and that you would open up our ears and our hearts to your word and ultimately to you once again this morning. And we ask this for your glory's sake in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, so previously we had talked um, last week and the week before. Remember, I'm squeezing four chapters of Philippians into three weeks of teaching, right? But um, two weeks ago, we really talked about chapter one and looked at Paul's open-handedness, um, Paul's open-handedness towards life or death. Remember that these ancient letters of scripture, and there's a handout right there. Uh, these ancient letters of scripture were a lot like regular communication between people. Remember, when you communicate with someone back and forth today, whether it's by text message or email or letter, whatever it might be, don't you often tell the person news about yourself and then ask them news about themselves? I'm fine. How are you? Here's what's going on in my life. How did thus and such go? And you exchange that kind of information. That's part of what it means to be friends is that you invest in each other's lives. You share information about your own life and you enjoy learning about other people's lives. That's part of knowing each other. Well, for Paul and the Philippians in this letter, as with most of Paul's letters, he shares some information about himself, and he does that especially in chapter one. How is he doing? Well, he was in prison, um, and he was possibly even facing execution. He was awaiting trial. And in chapter one, we saw this incredible open-handedness that Paul had towards what might happen to him. Um, And his open-handedness towards um, the outcome of this trial, whether life or death, was, um, was incredibly faithful, filled with faith. He was able to face death, especially, but then also life, knowing that whatever might happen, 
he was, uh, nothing changed as far as God was concerned. Um, he was still righteous in Jesus Christ. And so because of faith in Jesus Christ and because of what God has done for us in Jesus, we also, like Paul, have that opportunity available to us that in faith we can look at whatever circumstances might come our way, um, whatever suffering, whatever situation that's out of our control. And by the grace of God, because we're not condemned in Jesus Christ, we can face it and say, well, God is not judging me through this. Uh, me and God are okay because of Jesus Christ. We have that opportunity to um, repent and receive forgiveness once and again, always throughout this life. And so we know where we're going at the end of this life. And so whatever happens um, between now and then is ultimately in God's hands. And he is merciful and good and loves us. And so when we trust in his character of love and mercy made manifest to us through Jesus Christ, um, ultimately that same open-handed approach of Paul becomes ours as well. Come what may, we know that we are God's and he is ours, that we nothing can take us out of his hand because of what Jesus has done. So Paul is demonstrating that open-handedness because the Philippians were going to experience suffering themselves. And they already had been experiencing suffering. And so that's the second point that Paul, um, and we saw this last week, that Paul is urging them to stand firm in the gospel, to persevere in bearing witness to Jesus Christ. And part of their perseverance in the gospel is that they ought to be unified. There was some disagreement among them there that we know about. We don't know what the disagreement was about. It wasn't so important that Paul needed to tell us. If it was about something really important, he would have said, don't listen to blah, blah, blah. This is the truth. But he didn't say that. He simply said to the disagreeing parties, I urge you to be of the same mind. I urge you to have a like-mindedness, to put the interests of others before your own. Isn't that what loving our neighbor means? And so he was urging them to do that. And as we saw last week in chapter 2, he gives them the example of Jesus Christ in his own humility. That in his humility, Jesus didn't count the equality that is his by right with God the Father, something to be held onto or grasped. But Jesus Christ himself demonstrated that same open-handedness. He humbled himself. Humbled himself to be born as a baby in Bethlehem. And ultimately, from the point of his death, uh, his life, it meant that he also would die. And as Paul says um, in chapter 2, that he submitted himself to death, even death on a cross. Not only did Jesus deign to die on behalf of those whom he loved, but his death was the lowest, most humiliating death you could possibly imagine. Um, Just a horrific death, a um, a torturous death, a, a shameful death, and all of that out of love for those he sought to redeem and bring back into fellowship with God the Father. And so you see there's this pattern of humility of Jesus humbling himself, emptying himself, going low. And we looked at a parabola as a way of understanding this kind of direction. And then God raises him up upon his resurrection is God's amen to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, to Jesus' own humility and to the cross itself. And so because of Jesus' humility, because of his example, his example becomes not just the way to walk in for us as Christians and for those first Philippians, but it also becomes the means by which we are able by the grace of God to walk in that way. Because Christ has bought us back from sin and death, he's put a new heart um, in, uh, taken away our stony heart and given us a heart of flesh, given us, made us into a new creation, one that will obey. Um, and again, we struggle between the old creation and the new creation. Um, in this life, we'll always struggle, and yet we can trust that um, that God has made us new creatures in him, and that we can, by the grace of God, he can transform us bit by bit into what is already ours, the righteousness that is ours through the 
past work of Jesus Christ and that will be ultimately realized at the end of all things when Jesus comes back. So this, um, in chapter 3, as we look today, and a little bit of chapter 4, chapter 3 continues to look at this question for the Philippians and also for us, this question of how then shall we live? And the answer that Paul wants to give them is that we shall persevere. They shall persevere in the midst of suffering. Throughout this life, we're called to persevere. And Paul calls them to persevere in two ways. First of all, he basically says, don't go back. Don't go back to the old life. Don't allow that old creature to have sway over your life now. Um, And then he also says, look ahead, press on um, toward what God has already given you in Jesus Christ, towards the future that is ours through faith in him. Press on. So don't go back. Don't look back but press on and look ahead to what will come in Jesus Christ for those who put their trust in him. So with that in mind, that was a lot of talking, but now let's get into chapter 3 of Philippians. Um, Paul says, and this is Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul here rejoicing as part of this letter again and again in the midst of suffering. He rejoices and he calls the Philippians to rejoice, um, though their circumstances were dire. Um, and this warning is interesting. He's, calling, he's warning them about something that he warns the Galatians about. If you recall, um, those there for the Galatians, anybody remember what the Galatians were struggling with and what Paul's basic message was to the church in Galatia? This is not a test. And I won't call out your name, so it won't be on the audio. But if you want to say anything, no pressure if you don't. I will say it in just a minute. No one says it. In Galatia, they were tempted to look back, um, to go back as Gentile Christians. They were tempted because there were teachers that came in and told them, you are not real Christians. You Gentile believers, you, it doesn't matter if you believe in Jesus Christ, you also have to get circumcised. Otherwise, the promises that belong to the, um, the, those who are offspring of Jacob, of, excuse me, of Jacob, but also ultimately of Abraham, those promises will not be yours unless you get circumcised. And Paul's letter to the Galatians is so, it's a little bit funny because he's so mad at those people. He is, he just says things really boldly and he, um, he doesn't even qualify it. He just says some really bold things in the letter to the Galatians. Basically, don't you dare go back to that old life or don't you let those Jewish Christians who are trying to tell you that you need to become circumcised, don't let, don't listen to them. Whatever you do, don't listen to them. And so again, here, in Paul's letter to the Philippians, he's saying to them, um, don't listen to, he says this terrible epithet of them, look out for the dogs, those Jewish Christians who think they're so holy in righteousness. Um, Dogs themselves, I love a little puppy dog, but dogs were regarded by the Jews as the most despised, insolent, and miserable of creatures, which is so strange. Why would they hate dogs so much? Who doesn't love a little Fido? But, um, I, I, I understand this a little more after having been to India. When I was um, my first mission trip ever in 2004, I got to travel to India with my church. And, um, and my inclination, you know, was to see these dogs on the street. And by street, I don't mean a paved street. I mean a dusty thoroughfare where there were all sorts of animals who were going to the bathroom in the street. There was, um, there were dead animals in the street. There was all sorts of trash in the street. Tra- there were no trash, um, receptacles so you would just have trash mini heaps and then giant trash heaps um into the in the slums and so the dogs were just 
scavenging and you know how if you have a dog at home your dog eats the worst kind of everything we had a family dog once that at ate at a clam bake the dog ate um, corn cobs that had already been chewed and lobster shells that had been discarded uh, talk about a funky can't you just picture your dog being like that sounds delicious she inhaled the whole thing and then we had to drive 12 hours from Cape Cod back to Pittsburgh with her having those kinds of digestive issues <laughs> that a whole corn cob and lobster shells would create thankfully she didn't need surgery or anything like that but when you think about what a dog eats you just you want to say dog it's a dog Dogs eat terrible things. And in the ancient world, dogs were scavengers, just like in India. They would eat horrible things. The Indians couldn't imagine us having pets inside our house that were dogs. They thought that was just the most filthy thing imaginable when, when you think about what a dog will eat when left to its own devices. Then, of course, um, that, that's a head-scratcher from their perspective. Well, so in the ancient world, it was a lot like the way India is today, of course. And so for the Jews... Dogs were, again, the most despised, insolent, and miserable of creatures because of their patent uncleanness, because they were scavengers. And it was used by the Jews as a derogatory title for the Gentile nations who were enemies of evil, excuse me, enemies of Israel. And so it's so interesting that here Paul is flipping the script. He's calling those Jewish Christians who would um, revile the Gentile Christians and desire for them to become like Jewish Christians by getting circumcised, he flips it. Those Jewish holy, perceived to be holy in their own mindset, uh, Christians even, would sort of look down on the Gentile Christians and might even consider them dogs in their own heads until they were circumcised. And Paul is saying, no, it's you who live by the flesh. You are the dogs. Beware. Look out for the dogs. Look out for those evildoers who think that they're doing righteousness, but they're actually doing evil by regarding themselves and each other and other people according to the flesh. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And he goes on, for we are the circumcision, we who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Um, this, he, do you hear him echoing what Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter four, that we worship those who worship by spirit and truth are true worshipers of God. Um, Paul puts no confidence in the flesh. And when Paul says in the flesh, Calvin, John Calvin says that when Paul says in the flesh, he means everything that is outside of Christ. Um, this exulting or boasting or glorying. This is a verb that used it, Paul uses to define two extremes of religious attitude, either proud self-confidence. I'm proud of what I've done because I think it's wonderful and I can stand based on it. Other people will like me because I did thus and such or I have thus and such. Or um, that would be one kind of boasting, boasting in our own abilities. Or Paul uses this same word to talk about humble submission to God's grace as revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ as a way of boasting only in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so when Paul talks about boasting, he's really going back to Jeremiah um, 9, 23. I'm going to go ahead and read Jeremiah. Oh, I don't have it in there. Excuse me. I'm going to read it aloud to you, and then you can, we'll read um, what Paul says in Philippians. Do I really not have it? Oh, yeah. There it is. 
Um, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so um, Jeremiah 9.23 says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. Paul um, here, but also in his second letter to the Corinthians, talks about this boasting, boasting in the Lord as a kind of exulting in God's work on our behalf, rather than boasting in our own achievements or even taking pride in anything that we ourselves have done. Um, and with this same idea, one commentator says, the exaltation of the believer in the Savior stems from and is based on his finished work. Our boasting is not in ourselves, which is the essence of sin, but in another whose whose arm alone has brought salvation and on whom we rest in utter confidence and self-distrust. I love that word, self-distrust. It is an attitude which deflates pride, especially in our religious virtues and attainments, and exalts the sovereign grace of God and his matchless gift on which we have no claim. This is the kind of boasting that Paul is engaging in when he talks about boasting in Jesus Christ and putting no confidence in the flesh. He goes on to say, though I myself has, have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But again, all of what he had before Christ, he's going to count as nothing in light of the promise of what he has in Jesus Christ. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing uh, of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Again, isn't this wonderful? Don't you hear this echoing of the concept that Jesus talks about? In, G in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Again, Paul is saying we could come up with this whole balance sheet. I'm not very good at finances, but I do think of the balance sheet. I think of... Um, credits and debits and we like to put different things as a credit to our account it's just our nature we go to it all the time i don't know about you but i'm always um trying to give myself one more um credit um maybe it's, it comes from having siblings especially i would always notice okay she got in trouble for that i'm going to do something positive over here i'm going to get noticed for this um, i had one sibling who would always get noticed for disobedience and i was always so proud and glad to get noticed for obedience but it was still the same sin the sin of disobedience and the sin of pride in me and so there's that pride that we have in our own achievements i have one um friend here that um, we have dinner with Scott and I will have dinner with every once in a while. And I think it's happened at least a couple of times that um, they're kind of very, very old. They're from a very old family in the South. And part of me takes pride in the fact that I'm from a very old family in the North. 
And so just, um, so <laughs> and this particular couple, I kind of like, I would imagine that our ancestors would have gotten along. And I have this one that was, you know, a very important New York City doctor. And he was head of the American Medical Association. Do you hear me bragging? And we have all these wonderful clothes from what my great-grandmother would wear to all of these different social functions in New York City. Um, and all of this is something that I'm proud of, but I don't always realize I'm proud of it until I feel the need to tell someone. And now I just told you all, so I've, I've ruined it. But I just need, you know, the need, I think when we pay attention to what do you just need to tell someone, um, it's very humbling. It's sobering to realize somehow I just need to tell someone something so I feel special, so I feel important, so I feel like I matter, so I feel like I've done something worth doing. Um, even if it's a good thing, even if it's a righteous thing spiritually, um, even if, you know, if you memorize all of the uh, the Bible verses on that sheet, I don't want to hear about it. Don't tell me about it. <laughs> but you'll have um, just the benefit of doing it. There is that pride within us that always wants credit for what we've done. So again, with this couple, um, I always want to bring up something like that. And um, it's always funny because at least twice they brought up a different story where um, the wife's um, family, was she's descended from George Washington, and they had inherited George Washington's table silver and unfortunately got stolen and lost, so they don't have it now, but they used to have it. And, uh, you know, that just always trumps any kind of self-importance that I have because I'm not that important. And so every time I feel the need to justify myself in front of these people based on my ancestry, I kind of get knocked down a peg just because they, they win. They win by being descended from George Washington. So I'm like, okay, I'm, well, I should have learned not to do this before. Um, so, um, but again, that if you think about that measuring up, that self-justification, we would always like to justify ourselves based on um, things that we've done. And so Paul himself, he could, he's saying, I could justify myself based on all of these wonderful things about myself, that I'm of this tribe, that I'm a Hebrew of Hebrew, I'm a Pharisee, I was so righteous according to the law, I persecuted Christians, which was perceived as being a righteous Jewish thing. Um, and yet all of that that he could stand on in his own sense of righteousness as a way of trying to justify himself, he recognizes now in light of the cross of Jesus Christ, it's not a gain, it's all a loss. Because the danger is that he would stand on it instead of standing on Jesus Christ. The danger is that he would put pride and confidence in that instead of in what God has done for him. Um, and so now in this new life, and for us in this new life, um, Paul rejects with horror um, what, his do- what he's done in the past. He treats his past achievements or his current points of pride as liabilities in relationship with God. And so and that's a question for us today. What if we made a balance sheet? What are the things that you're proud of that you've done, that you've achieved, or that your family's achieved, or whatever it is? Um, would you be willing to look at that and say, all of that is rubbish? Um, Paul uses a word that talks about it being um, street trash, just like the street trash that the dog would eat, the worst kind of trash, street trash. He considers all of his past achievements street trash. Do we have the courage to look back on our old life or our old selves this way, to think about any aspects of our current life that are not submitted to Christ in this way? Do we have the courage to forego self-justification and to live into what is ours through Jesus Christ, our inheritance, which is justification by faith because of his work and not because of our own works? So we hear right now, if you weren't certain that this was about justification by faith, you hear it in verse 9. Here is this quintessential definition of righteousness in Christ, the imputed righteousness that God 
imputes to us, that God counts as ours, even though we haven't earned it. It's earned by Jesus Christ, and we simply put our trust in him, and it becomes ours. We are found in Christ, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law or from our own achievement, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Well, so moving on again, um, all of this, All of this rejecting and leaving behind what has been in the past is so that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Again, the resurrection from the dead is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul is looking ahead to that future reality that will happen at the last day when he dies or Jesus returns, whichever comes first. And all of that. Um, all of this life is meant to be lived in light of that future gaze. And um, the whole goal of look, leaving behind the old life and trusting in our justification by faith um, is so that we would know Christ. Do you hear that right here? That I may know him, that I may know Jesus Christ. And he'll go on to say that this is the prize of what we're looking for in this life and the next. So I'm going to go on to that. But do you hear how, isn't that wonderful that that's what Andrew was talking about in his sermon? Um, that knowing Jesus Christ is part of our inheritance as Christians. The goal is not just everlasting life. And um, as my father always says, it's not just as a Christian, it's not just about, forgive me for this cheesiness, it's not just about pie in the sky when we die, but it's about steak on our plate while we wait. That as Christians, we have this glorious inheritance that we get to taste even now um, through faith in Jesus Christ and through relationship with him. And so even as Paul leaves behind this old life and this old way of living and justifying himself, he presses on towards what is already his in Christ Jesus. Not that I have already obtained this, this future reality of the resurrection from the dead and the perfection, the moral perfection that will be ours at the last day. And also that seeing Jesus face to face without any sin or obstacle in the way. That's not ours yet. Um, Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on, excuse me, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think in this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Again, even as Paul has um, turned away from that old way of thinking in the old life, he presses on to obtain what is his in the future. This is the don't look back and this is the look ahead. Press on and look ahead. This underscores um, the fact that we live in the, in this sense in which our salvation is already secured in Jesus Christ. And yet there is this future blessing, this future perfection that will come, this maturity, this spiritual maturity, um, and this resurrection from the dead. This is our inheritance. Um, And so in the striving, as we are striving in this life, um, we're not just um, striving to obey and striving for um, moral obedience, but we're actually striving to claim what is already ours in Jesus Christ. We're striving to walk in the way that he's already showed us, even as Jesus says, follow me. Um, He's calling us, yes, to obey him and to cause, uh, allow God to transform our behavior to be like his. But ultimately, he's calling us to follow him in the sense that he wants us to be in relationship with him. Follow him means don't just imitate me, but come with me. 
walk with me in this way. Jesus has shown us the way to walk in. And in keeping our eyes on him by the grace of God, he will empower us to live according to who we already are. And so this language here, this language of pressing on, it's actually um, in the original language that press on is a word pursue. Or um, it even it's used in verse 12 and also verse 14. It's a hunting word. It's used also in foot racing. That idea of that burst of speed to get to the end of, um, to the finish line of a foot race. Um, and that even making it my own or taking hold. I press on to take hold is what it says more accurately in the original language. I press on to take hold of it because Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. That suggests again this chase imagery, this run imagery. Um, taking hold suggests that we would pursue and overtake or chase and capture and we're seeking of laying we're seeking to lay hold of that for which I was already laid hold of by Jesus Christ we claim him even as he has already claimed us I remember in the early years of faith as a teenager um, I always there was someone I'm sure someone preached a sermon on this and it was very helpful for me but if you recall the story where Jesus is walking on the water and he comes to the disciples and they're in the boat and Peter wants to walk on the water too and Peter gets out of the boat to walk towards Jesus and he's walking towards him and again if you remember the bottom line of all of these um, sermons it's always keep your eyes on Jesus and you'll be able to walk on water um, but I heard a really good one once where the bottom line wasn't that which was great um, because I'm pretty bad about keeping my eyes on Jesus in the distractions of this life and the world. And so this better sermon that I heard said, actually, um, if you recall, it wasn't so much Peter's grasp upon Jesus that kept him from sinking down under the waves. He was falling, and yet Jesus Christ was the one who reached out and grabbed him and was holding on to him. And so I think about that with, you know, with a hand grasp. Is it that our, is our faith about our grasp upon Jesus Christ and how strong our grasp is? Or is our faith actually dependent upon the strength of His grasp? And thank goodness it really is, and this is what this person said in the sermon, our, our faith and our life of faith is really dependent upon the grasp of Jesus Christ upon us. And His grasp is perfect and certain and sure. He will not let go of us, just like He didn't let go of Peter who was slipping under the waves. Um, and I recall this also um, when um, Matthew in chapter 12 quotes Isaiah 42 about Jesus Christ. And he says, um, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. Um, there's this sense in which in Jesus Christ, God is so gracious and gentle to us, even in this life when we fail um, or when we when our faith feels like it's flickering or um, faltering. He's the one who is our strength. And so again, in this life, part of this life and part of the call in this life, part of this pressing on in this upward call involves, yes, straining ahead and leaving behind what we've left, but it actually involves straining ahead to lean back on the everlasting arms of Jesus Christ, straining ahead to let go of all of the things that we would use to justify ourselves, straining ahead to rest in the justification that God has won for us in Jesus Christ. Um, Again, this goal, the prize of this upward call of God in Jesus Christ, the straining forward to what lies ahead involves all of what God has for us in eternity. But ultimately, our inheritance is Jesus Christ himself. Um, Paul alludes to this um, throughout his letters, but we also hear it especially in Hebrews chapter 12. And this is, again, one of my favorite verses that describes what this life is like for us as Christians. 
Um, and my father thinks that Paul wrote Hebrews. Um, we don't know officially who wrote Hebrews, but this, these few verses suggest, are very similar to what Paul says. It's very similar to Paul's own approach to this life. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that was set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see that Jesus endured the race? His race was the race of the cross. What a marathon. Um, and he endured, uh, he persevered because he was looking towards the end goal. And the end goal of, the death, of his death on the cross was really to buy back a redeemed people for, for him and for God the Father. He was looking to us. We are the joy that was set before Jesus Christ as he ran the marathon of the crucifixion and the suffering and death that he endured. And then he is our joy, even as we run the race of this life. The marathon of this life is run by looking forward to our joy, the joy that we have in God through Jesus Christ. And that's where knowing Jesus brings joy. That's one of the calls to press in and persevere in this life in knowing Jesus Christ. We do this through fellowship in the body, through reading scripture. We find that future inheritance of knowing Christ by seeing him face to face becomes ours now in bits and pieces, in parts as we rely on him, as we say, you know, I just can't get through this day. And we pray to him for help. God is so gracious um, in coming to rescue us. And that leaning back, that calling out to God for help involves um, relying even more upon God's grace for us in Jesus Christ. And so this inheritance is Jesus himself. I love this verse from Be Thou My Vision. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Um, Jesus Christ is our joy. He is our inheritance at the end and even now. And so with this upward call of God and Jesus Christ, there's this call to press on and to press forward. The call is this word, Clasis, and it's found within um, the word paraclete, the word of, um, that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit. The call of God upon our lives is something that happens at the very beginning when he calls us by faith. And his call is something that happens throughout every moment of every day. Um, I just think of the words that um, God says through this psalmist. If you hear the, the voice of the Lord calling you, do not harden your heart the way the Israelites hardened their heart. He's calling us every hour of every day to that sweet fellowship that we have in him um, because he delights to see us acknowledge him. He delights to have us call out to him for help and then to come in and rescue us. Um, And so that call, it's an upward call. He's continually calling us to have eyes and minds on heavenly things even as we live throughout this life. And so I just want to end with this um this last situation from the last of um, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. I know Matt mentioned um, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe last week in his sermon. And the last battle is one of, if you ever want a picture of heaven, it's a wonderful picture of what heaven will be like. And as they've reached this place that's meant to be like heaven, what they find is that as they um, as they explore heaven, um, there's even there are even more delights and even more beautiful things for them to enjoy as they come further up and further in. And so the call is not just on the last day when we are see Jesus face to face, but it's really a call for this whole life, the call of these Narnians as they come into this new world. I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. 
This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. And this unicorn says, come further up, come further in. That's God's invitation to us in Jesus Christ for every day of this life. So I'm going to pray, and then I want to feel free to ask me some questions after that. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the way you give us the grace in him to look to you to forego all of what we could have through justifying ourselves by our own achievements or what we've, um, we perceive that we have that's of merit in this life. And we thank you, Lord, for um, that matchless merit that we have in you through your death on the cross. And so we stand in that today and for all the days of our life. We'll stand at, um, in that, in that merit of Jesus Christ at the last day, at judgment day. But we ask, Lord, that you would give us the grace to rest in your finished work every day of this life, that we would hear your call, your call to live into the reality of who we already are in Jesus Christ. And so we ask this for your glory's sake and for our benefit. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.